This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my intuitive eating online course. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 181 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Laura Thomas, a registered nutritionist and fellow certified intuitive eating counselor and the author of the new book, Just Eat It, How to Get Your Shit Together Around Food. We talked about the problems with the wellness diet, why subtle levels of weight stigma are so hard to pinpoint and eradicate, why quote-unquote emotional eating and turning to food for comfort are falsely demonized in diet culture, why people in the nutrition field often struggle in their own relationships with food, and so much more. It's a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Rita who writes, Hi, Christy. I stumbled across your podcast and feel like I've come home. After years of yo-yo dieting and eating disorder and so, so much shame and grief around my body, I know in my core that intuitive eating and health at every size is the right slash only approach. My question is around some of what I've heard you say about 12-step programs. I'm a recovering alcoholic and have been in a 12-step program and sober for 18 years. I believe deeply that it's a solution for my alcoholism. Is it your belief that 12-step programs don't work or more that food addiction itself isn't really a thing? I so want to wholeheartedly embrace intuitive of eating and have started with a mini course, but I fundamentally know that AA saved my life and I'm feeling a little confused and conflicted. Thank you so much. So thanks, Rita, for that question. It's a great one. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, I can definitely understand your hesitation about this, but rest assured that I definitely think 12-step programs work for substance use disorders, and your experience is very much proof of that, right? Like AA has been working for you for 18 years, which is amazing. So definitely don't let any sort of comments from me sway you in, in any other direction because it sounds like what you're doing is really working and just keep doing what you're doing in that regard because you know yourself and you know what you need to stay sober. The problem that I have with the 12-step model is just that while it's great for addressing issues with drugs and alcohol, and it really is, it doesn't work for food because food addiction isn't really a thing, like you said. And that's not to say that people don't feel addicted to food because you definitely can. And I know that I did in the midst of my disordered eating too. So the thing is that chronic dieting and disordered eating can absolutely make it feel like food has an addictive quality. It might feel like if you let certain foods pass your lips, you just can't stop eating them, right? Or if you have them in your cupboard, you just keep going back for more. And it might feel like certain food groups in particular, like carbs and sugar, are completely irresistible even when you're already full. 
And those feelings are very real, but they're not caused by addiction, even though they might feel addictive. They're actually caused by restriction and deprivation. So we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but basically when we deprive our bodies of nutrients and energy, our bodies think that they're starving. And so survival mode kicks in. And this drives us to eat anything and everything, but particularly foods that will give us instant energy, really quick source of blood sugar. So that means carbohydrates and sugary foods. And so until we are really able to feed ourselves adequately and to not be in that state of deprivation where our bodies are in survival mode, and until we show our bodies that they can really trust us again and allow them the time to rebuild that trust, we're going to continue to feel out of control around food because our bodies are trying to protect us from starvation. So I call this the restriction pendulum, the inevitable process of swinging from restriction to feeling like you can't stop eating or binging. This is also known as the restrict binge cycle. But whatever you call it, that's the reality of how our bodies respond to starvation and deprivation. And by the way, when I say starvation, that might conjure up images of really severe restriction or emaciation. And in fact, that's not the case. So your body can go into starvation mode even from a diet that seems like it's pretty low key, you know, just a quote unquote lifestyle change or a plan or a protocol or a reset or a reboot or a cleanse or a detox. Like there's a million things that diets call themselves by now. And they actually all are a form of starving the body in some way. There's definitely physical deprivation, physical starvation that happens. There's also psychological deprivation and psychological starvation that happens when you go on diets or when you restrict your food in some way. And so whatever the case, whatever level of restriction you're doing, it's still restriction. And the way that your body's going to respond to it is by swinging back and forth on that restriction pendulum. So there is another way, though. You don't actually have to stay stuck on that restriction pendulum forever. The key is letting go of the restriction and letting go of the chronic dieting and relearning the intuitive eating skills that we were all born with. Because as I always say, intuitive eating is the default mode. And these intuitive eating skills really support us in making decisions based on our body's needs, not on diet culture's rules. And I promise that when you eventually get the hang of intuitive eating, you won't feel addicted to food anymore. It's true that for a long time, those feelings might persist. You might still be responding to the trauma of having been deprived for a long time, but eventually things really will settle. The pendulum really will stop in the middle once you get the hang of intuitive eating and have really gone through the process of breaking free from diet mentality and diet culture, all the internalized diet culture beliefs that you have, making peace with food, learning to trust your hunger and fullness cues and all of that, which is a really advanced move, by the way. Hunger and fullness cues are like super advanced, especially for anyone who is currently struggling with an active eating disorder. So that might be way down the line in recovery for some of you listening and likely is because we get really taken away from those intuitive eating skills we're all born with when we engage in disordered eating and especially when that gets entrenched into a full-blown eating disorder. But anyway, ultimately intuitive eating is going to support us in making decisions about food that don't have anything to do with diet culture's rules. And I'm including in diet culture's rules the 12-step model of quote-unquote abstinence because, like I said earlier, the 12-step model is great for substance use disorders and has worked for so many people, but it just doesn't work for food because quote-unquote abstinence from particular foods is the exact opposite of what people need when they're feeling as if they're addicted. And again, with food, it's not actual addiction the way it is with alcohol and drugs. But the abstinence approach to food actually exacerbates disordered eating because it puts people on the 
restriction pendulum, aka the restrict binge cycle, or in some cases it drives people into anorexia-style restrictive eating without any compensatory binging, just full-on restriction. And so either way, it's driving people into a disordered place with food. It's making their eating more disordered. And that's really because taking an abstinence approach with food just feeds right into the oppressive mindset of diet culture, which is a system of beliefs that demonizes some foods while elevating others and stigmatizes some bodies while elevating others. So back in the 1960s, when diet culture had been going for quite a while already, but it had ramped up to a real fever pitch in the 60s, the 12-step world decided to wade into the, the realm of food. And that was really a mistake because it misapplied the model of addictive substances, which works for actually addictive substances, to food, which is not, in fact, addictive. And so it's only when people are deprived, again, of food that they start to feel a sense of compulsion around it. And diet culture does this. It demonizes certain foods. It points the finger and lays the blame on food when the real culprit is diet culture and dieting behavior itself. And so diet culture is still doing this today, and there are still people who believe that food is addictive. There's even some research claiming to have found that food is addictive, but that research is incredibly flawed. So it hinges on the concept that when we eat food, the pleasure centers in the brain light up. And researchers point to this as evidence that food can be just as addictive as drugs, which also light up these pleasure centers in the brain. And of course, that pathologizes the idea of food being being pleasurable, right? It, it makes it out to be a bad thing. It equates food to drugs, which are really devastating and have terrible effects on people's lives. And so it paints the idea of food as pleasure as a problem. And in a world that's obsessed with quote-unquote good and quote-unquote bad foods and restrictive lifestyles, right, in diet culture, it makes sense that this is how the research would be interpreted, that it would be interpreted to say pleasure is bad. So remember that even science is biased by our, our culture and our perceptions of what is true because scientists are people too. They grow up in this same culture that we all grow up in. They have biases that they bring to the table and the ways that they interpret their research. But in reality, there are actually certain human drives that exist in order to perpetuate the species, and all of them are pleasurable, right? So food, sex, nursing or cuddling a baby, altruistic behaviors— all of these things are part of this category of human drives to perpetuate the species, and they've all been found to light up the pleasure centers in the brain, which makes total sense from an evolutionary standpoint, because if those things weren't pleasurable, we probably wouldn't come back for more, and so our species probably would have died out a long time ago. So having those things be pleasurable is actually adaptive. And so finding pleasure in food is not a sign of addiction at all. In fact, it's essential for well-being and a balanced and nourishing relationship with food. We have to have pleasure. It's important. It's not pathological. And so when we try to fight this natural inclination, fight this adaptive mechanism that keeps us excited about food and enjoying food and keeps us thriving and nourished, that's when we start to really struggle. And so the research on so-called food addiction, the totality of the research really bears this out. And I talked a lot more about that in episode 80 with Marcy Evans and episode 139 with Lisa Dubriel. So I would encourage you to check out both of those episodes if you're interested in learning more about why food really isn't addictive. 
And for my fellow science nerds out there who are interested in checking out the research for yourself, I recommend reading the paper Sugar Addiction, the State of the Science from the European Journal of Nutrition. And we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. Although, of course, trigger warning is always for numbers and weight stigmatizing language in that paper because scientific journals basically always use the O words to describe larger bodies. So to wrap up, Rita, just I want to thank you for asking this question, and I definitely want to be clear that I fully support using a 12-step program for drug and alcohol disorders if the 12-step model works for you, and it sounds like it really does for you. And for some folks out there, there are other models for handling addiction that might work better, but I know millions of people have had success with the 12-step approach, including many people I know, so I'm not here to knock that. I, I definitely think that's a really effective model for many people when it comes to actual addictive substances. The issue I and my colleagues in the eating disorder recovery field have with the 12-step approach is just that food is not an addictive substance, and so you can't apply the abstinence model to food. And food issues really shouldn't be treated with that model because that just makes the disordered eating worse and keeps people locked in a lifelong battle with food when they could really be finding so much more peace and freedom by going through true eating disorder recovery and true diet culture recovery and eventually learning to eat intuitively again the way that we were all born knowing how to do. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly, because I think now this question is from two years ago, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. I do an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast for the course where you get to ask your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already so that you can get all your questions answered and work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put the practice into play in your own life. There's also tons of other great content in the course, including 13 modules guiding you through the principles of intuitive eating and a private Facebook group just for course participants so that you can connect with fellow people who are on this intuitive eating journey with you and get some real-time guidance from me and my team as well. A participant named Kelly said this about the course. I've read the book and have done other courses, but your course, Christy, has really helped. I've been holding on to some of these thoughts and going through the exercises, and it really made me look at it from a different perspective. I'm now even seeing all the sneaky ways diet culture was around me and have been cutting it all out. It's been so liberating. I was hesitant to purchase thinking it was like other courses, but it's way better and so worth the money. Your hard work on it shows. Thank you for all you do. I'm grateful for you in this community today. So if you're ready to become an intuitive eater like Kelly and break free from diet culture once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Poshmark, which is an app that I love for anyone who's recovering from diet culture. On Poshmark, you can shop from millions of closets across America, which is a great way to make sure you always have comfortable clothes that fit the body you have now rather than the body you used to have or the body you think you should have without breaking the bank. And Poshmark helps you sell the stuff you don't wear anymore so that you can trade in those triggering clothes in your closet for some cash in your pocket. 
Poshmark has a really impressive range of brands all across the size and gender spectrum, including a great selection of plus sizes. You won't believe the deals you'll find, and shipping is super fast and easy for both the seller and the buyer, and it's all handled through the free Poshmark app. When you see something you want, just make the seller an offer so you can get items at a price that works for you. And when you're ready to get those old clothes out of your closet, listing on Poshmark is super easy. Just upload pictures of your stuff to the app, set a price, and then ship them to the lucky buyer. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the free Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for $5 off your first purchase. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Laura Thomas. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Well, I think it was pretty complicated from pretty early on. (laughs) So I I was obviously thinking about this before getting on the call with you, Christy. And I remembered one kind of uncomplicated memory, I suppose, that I'd like to share, which is that um, when I was probably about two or three, my mom tells the story of me like tipping soup bowls over. Like I just didn't like soup very much. <laughs> and, and I was thinking about, yeah, that's, that's probably about how I feel about soup right now. So that was, that was probably pretty intuitive. <laughs> <laughs> but then from there, I think things got kind of murky pretty quickly. And I don't have very many sort of of those, those fun memories around food. My memories after that are of food are, are quite difficult. And I think that sort of wrapped up in the fact that I had a pretty turbulent childhood, lots of stuff (laughs) kind of going on in there. Yeah, just to kind of maybe illustrate that a little bit. I went to lots of different schools when I was younger and we moved around a lot. But um, one sort of headmaster at one school that I went to told my mom that our family was dysfunctional. And... (laughs) That's that's probably a pretty accurate way of describing it. Yeah, just to kind of wrap that up neatly. So so yeah, from from the onset, it's complicated in the sense that that food was sort of a companion and it was a constant in what was otherwise quite a turbulent sort of time. But it was in other ways it also felt like a battleground. And oftentimes I had to fend for myself around food from quite an early age. So yeah, I've got conflicting feelings around food from from when I was younger, I suppose. And I remember sort of getting even a little bit older, sort of starting secondary school, going home to my friend's house. So like going home from school, but, but going and hanging out with a friend and her having loads and loads of snacks at her house and and me what felt like at the time eating an extraordinary amount of of snacks and i don't remember being restricted at my own house but for for whatever reason i i go really hard on snacks at, at hers and i remember having a real sense of shame around that and i think this all gets more complicated by the fact that i, I suppose because i was using food to soothe to comfort that I wasn't a bigger body as a child. And so then had everything that comes along with being in a bigger body. So I was bullied relentlessly 
well, what felt like relentlessly anyway, at school, got called horrible names. I've talked about this on my podcast before, like my nickname was Thunder Thighs. And objectively, I was bigger. I was a fat child. But that was, you know, that word was used as an insult. That word was used to hurt me. And so, yeah, I had a complicated relationship with food, which then morphed into a complicated relationship with my body. And I'm sure that exacerbated your complicated relationship with food too, right? Because in our culture, I mean, I talk about this a lot, where the concept of emotional eating, I think is largely, for the most part, like there there wouldn't exist this concept of emotional eating if it weren't for diet culture, because diet culture sort of creates that as like a thing to blame and a thing to point to as, oh, this is what's causing your larger body and this is bad and you need to stop doing this, right? And so if you turn to food for comfort, which I think is a natural thing, and especially for kids who have trauma, I think it's a very easily accessible thing. And easily, you know, it's like most kids are not going to be able to access other ways of coping that might be, especially in a dysfunctional family, like you don't, and I identify with that term as well, you know, having come from a pretty dysfunctional family myself, not being given the sort of coping skills by your family, not being taught the coping skills that might be more beneficial in the long run. And so food is kind of a relatively benign coping mechanism and it's widely available. So I think it's natural for kids, especially who are struggling with traumatic issues to turn to food as a form of comfort, but then it's, it doesn't stop there, right? It's like you turn to food for comfort and then people demonize that and diet culture demonizes that. And it's like, oh God, watch out. You're getting bigger. Like, don't eat so much of this. You're going to get fat or like you are fat. So you need to stop. And all of that drama just gets layered on it. So then this thing that was a benign coping skill that helped you get through the day suddenly becomes so fraught. And that's 100% it. Like you completely nailed it there. It's taken me a really long time to learn that. And it's something that I've, it's so interesting to see this now play out in my clients in that almost every single person that comes to see me will at some point identify with this idea of emotional eating or stress eating or comfort eating or what whatever label they give it. And they, again, they carry so much shame around that. And it takes so much work to unpack that and explain that, like, no, that's potentially all you had available to you to look after yourself in that moment at that time. And you were doing the best that you can. And if it weren't for diet culture, that's not how you would feel about that coping mechanism. So how can we, how can we maybe reframe that and look at it as actually this is A, serving a purpose And then B, let's try and think about what is the purpose that it's serving? What is that need that emotional or comfort eating is serving for you? And if we can kind of look at it in those terms, then we can figure out other ways to meet that need. Not Let's not take away the emotional eating, but what can we add to that? Because I think what diet culture has a tendency to tell us to do is that we have to remove emotional eating from our emotional coping toolkit, but it doesn't give us any other skills or tools to put in there. Right. And so if we take emotionally eating away, then there's nothing left in there. And then you're in a far worse place than when you started off. Yes, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't 
give you any other solution. And I think too, like diet culture creates the sense of restriction and deprivation because it's depriving you of this thing that was a comfort and also depriving you of food because usually on the flip side of emotional eating is this like impetus to restrict. And so oftentimes people end up, you know, when they are turning to food for comfort, then the rest of the time they're trying to restrict because they're like, oh, I got to make up for the fact that I'm using food in this way, or I'm being told that I'm fat and that I need to lose weight. And like, here's the way that's being held out to me as the way to do it. Right. And so like, then there's also this actual physical deprivation too, that's happening where the food is not just an emotional coping mechanism anymore, but it's also like you physically need it because you're not getting enough elsewhere in your life. And so you're removing something that's not only an emotional support, but also a physical need and reality. Mm -hmm. And I 100% fell into that cycle, trying to restrict to try and control my weight, which would, you know, maybe work for short periods of time. And then it would ultimately backfire in what I would label as more emotional eating. But what I realized with some hindsight is actually just that primal hunger, that physical need to nourish my body. And so, yeah, like totally identify with that binge restrict, binge restrict cycle that probably went on through most of my late teenage years and into my 20s. Wow. That is really painful. Yeah, it's it's really tough. It's funny to say it out loud because it's usually me asking the question. <laughs> I feel like you've turned, turned it on me. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the so tables. Now I'm, feeling, I'm feeling what my clients are feeling right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know it's a vulnerable thing, right? To, to talk about this stuff and yeah. to like really explore your own history with food. And yeah, I think sometimes we sort of like bury that stuff, right? I mean, I one of the reasons I started my podcast was because I had such a complicated relationship with food of my own. And like, unbeknownst to me, now I can see that was almost six years ago that I started the podcast. And I'm like, oh, I was at the end of my recovery then. I can see that now. But at the time, I really still identified as an emotional eater. I still, I was mostly eating intuitively, but I would still occasionally have like, I mean, actually, I think i worked out the timeline. I think my last major binge was six months before, or no, it was a month before I started the podcast actually, which is like so wild to think about. So at the time it was still very raw and new. And I was like, I'm, you know, an emotional eater. I'm so fucked up around food and I'm a nutritionist. So that's added pressure of like, why am I still like this? You know? And I think the the process of doing the podcast in that early, like the first season was really helpful in just identifying with other people who also felt sort of fucked up around food and and seeing like everybody's got some kind of stuff around food in this culture. So what I went through is part of a lineage, is part of like a cultural story here that so many of us go through. And why is that? And the sort of why is that is is what led me into the subsequent seasons of like, oh, it's diet culture, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think so many of us have these these terrible histories with food that just get swept under the rug and are seen as benign or normal in our culture. Like, I wonder for you, did anyone call you out on it when you were growing up? Did you identify it as a problem and try to seek help? Or was it just like, oh, I'm just really messed up around food and that's the way it is? I think there are kind of two answers to that question. So yes and no. I think throughout my undergraduate degree and my 
my postgraduate degree, I was very disordered. And that was really reinforced to me by the fact that I was studying nutrition and mm-hmm. dietetics. Surprise! <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> and so, yeah, I think I fully accepted that that was just not only part and parcel of being a nutrition student, but part and parcel of being a woman. Like that's, it's almost that, like what I think you were touching on before that intergenerational transmission of that this is what you do as, as a woman in our culture. But then there, there was one point where um, I became severely underweight. And it was just to give some context, I suppose I was finishing up my PhD. I'd had, uh, I'd, I did three years of research in my PhD working on the gastrointestinal microbiome. And I was really fascinated by that area of research. I'd done it in my undergrad and continued it for my PhD. But the PhD supervisor that I had, the professor that I was working under, was an absolute shitbag of a human. Like, there's no other way to describe it. <laughs> he, he'd come from industry and come back into academia, and he expected us to work as though we were in industry and at a level where we, you know, we already had our PhDs and like he'd he'd come from from a place where people were fully trained and fully qualified and then... And being paid a really high salary, I'm sure too. Yeah, yeah. To then like, I was the most senior person in the lab for a long time and I only had a bachelor's degree and I was basically like the lab tech and training undergraduate students and trying to get my PhD and TA and all this stuff. And there were three of us in the lab and we all ended up on antidepressants. Oh my God. Yeah. It was a really, really awful environment. And ultimately that professor didn't make tenure. Good. Thank God. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> he definitely didn't deserve it. But, but, you know, he like pretty much fucked us up in the process mm-hmm. of that little experiment of that foray back into academia. And so that, had a that had a knock-on effect on my appetite and so I as you might expect when or or as what can often happen when people are taking antidepressants is you lose your appetite and subsequently might lose some weight but then I so I kind of like went on like that for a, a while I got a new advisor who I really liked I got a new project who I really liked and actually more aligns with the work that I'm doing now because it was in behavior change so I was looking at behavior change theory, which is still a huge interest of mine. But then I went through a really shitty breakup, like a really, really sh- like, you know, that first real heartbreak where you've been like living with a person and then they like do some shady shit behind your back. Oh, um, and then you find out that it was in your bed, in your house. And oh, just, no. Oh, okay. oh. And I can kind of, it's fine. He's, he's, we're, we're totally over that. Good. <laughs> but at the time, at the time, it was the worst thing that, I mean, it wasn't the worst thing that had ever happened to me, but it felt like it was the worst thing. And I think probably because, you know, going back to like my early experiences and, and, and maybe not being able to cope, not, not having that sort of emotional infrastructure to know how to deal with that, that definitely came up for me again as an adult. Yeah, relationships can push on that stuff so hard. 
Well, yeah, it's just a microcosm for all your shit, isn't mm-hmm. it? it really so, is. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I've been thinking about this and I think that I just embodied how fragile I felt and I became very, very thin. And at that point, my mom was like, you need to eat. <laughs> and so people were, you know, there were people around me. I, I remember my friends were always like trying to take me out to dinner and come over with food. And they were so, like so supportive. I had like a really great support system, which I think ultimately was the thing that stopped it from becoming like a, like a clinically significant eating disorder. And I think, you know, I healed with time and, and with good support and friendships and things. And so ultimately it didn't get to a point where sadly it, it does for a lot of, of people. But I think then even with that, there was, there was a shape shift into like wellness, mm. <laughs> which I know is like your favorite thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, oh, God, this is so mortifying. Christy, I'm so embarrassed about what I'm about to say, but I started a wellness blog. <laughs> oh, oh, so many people have been down that road. I know. It's... But Christy, I was like, but I'm a scientist. Right. I have. PhD in nutrition, so I'm just going to focus on the minutia of detail about this one micronutrient. Sure, right. <laughs> but, it's, but I have a paper to back it up, so it's fine. Right, it's science. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so not, it was so not good because this is, so I graduated my PhD at this point, and um, this was like in the early days of my podcast, like right before I found Health at Every Size and, and Intuitive Eating, and oh my God, like I don't even think I wrote about this in the book, but I would spend my weekends meticulously making all these amazing wellnessy foods that didn't have oil and didn't have this and didn't have that and blah, 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 blah. It was bullshit. But I would then find myself, so I would spend all day like photographing this meticulous meal that met all these arbitrary nutritional standards. (laughs) And then I'd binge my face off in the evening. And I want, I would wonder why. And it's like this, you know, I was projecting this illusion of, of like control and wellness and, you know, everything that's that, that wellness culture diet, which is just diet culture 2.0, which I know you've, yep. <laughs> you've been saying for a really long time is that, that, that was, you know, that was just pure illusion. And so that there was then everything that came with not meeting those expectations, right? And, you know, feeling like a complete fraud, which I totally was. <laughs> right. And the guilt that goes with that and the shame, I'm sure. Yeah, all of those things, all of those things. So that was a really difficult position, but it, it wasn't, fortunately, too long after that, that I, I found Intuitive Eating Health at Every Size. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> what? And then I remember, because I was, I was in my postdoc at that point, and and I remember somebody started mentioning health at every size and passing in a meeting and just like completely like like turning their nose up at it and being like, can you believe that some people think that that's a thing? You oh. can't be healthy. And I was just like, I hadn't I hadn't quite found my voice at that point, Christy. So mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't say anything. But those attitudes are still very prevalent in academia, unfortunately. 
Oh, yeah, that is upsetting. I've heard them definitely in, in my schooling and training too. And I espoused that back in the day as well. Like I remember I've told this story on the podcast before, but in like 2010, I was in my program to become a dietitian and get my master's in public health nutrition and, you know, was very steeped in diet culture's version of nutrition and the so-called obesity epidemic, quote unquote, like, you know, all of the stuff, right? And a friend of mine was an editor at Slate, this online magazine that he's a health at every size person and and has been for a very long time. And his editor wanted to do a package on quote unquote childhood obesity. And oh. my friend was like, I can't do this. I have to recuse myself from like editing this package. It would normally have fallen to him because he did nutrition and food stuff for them. And, and so he was like, I'm stepping back, but can I get a friend of mine to guest edit this package? And then I can write a story and work with her as my editor or whatever. So he tapped me to do this. And I was like, hell yeah, like I'm all about, you know, ending childhood obesity, like just ugh, the worst. And through that process, he introduced me to health at every size. I we like sort of debated about it. And I ended up buying the fat studies reader and lessons mm. from the fatosphere. Mm. That was one of the first books I read too. Sorry to interrupt. but it's Oh, it's so good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, carry it's on. It's amazing. No, totally. But so, yeah, I was like introduced to that stuff. But those books sat on my shelf for years. Like I was not ready for it at the time. You know, I was very much like, this is not a thing. This is, you know, weight is inherently bad. It's obviously bad. It's bad for your body. You know, whatever, all the stuff. And so, yeah, I just I very much identify with that opposition from people in academia and in the nutrition field in general, because it's just so entrenched. It just was like I was in this world where that's what I was being taught in my classes. That's what I was. I was also working at the city department of health on anti quote unquote obesity initiatives. And, you know, a lot of it was also like stuff that wasn't really tied to that. That was sort of good nutrition, good quote unquote, yeah, meaning yeah, like, yeah. like not fat phobic <laughs> right but like a lot of it was had this sort of rationale of like it's gonna help and the quote-unquote obesity epidemic so I was just very steeped in it so it was it wasn't until later that I maybe sort of peeled back some of those layers of and also acknowledged my own history with food and my struggles with trying to embody this quote-unquote perfect nutrition approach and trying to embody wellness and being like wait why am I also binging my face off at night like I'm trying yeah. to eat perfectly quote-unquote all day and then yeah. end up out of control on the foods that the very foods that I restricted like why is that and I think that finally opened the door for me too to start to accept health at every size and intuitive eating but it just just took a long time and I think it's so fascinating fascinating that so many of us fall into this trap of like doing the thing quote unquote perfectly and almost being put into a position too of like being the expert and having to be held up or having other people look to us as the model of quote unquote good nutrition and wellness and then secretly like having this shameful you know it feels like such a shameful experience of not being able to adhere to it all the time but actually is so normal like of course we're not able to adhere to it all the time because it's ridiculous and restrictive and like complete bullshit well and i think that's exactly why i didn't have any resistance to these concepts and i guess i want to be careful with what i say here because i know that for some people it is really difficult to wrap your head around. And I fully understand why it's difficult to wrap your head around because we, you know, as nutrition professionals, we have it rammed down our throat from day one that fat is bad. 
the obesity epidemic. So, so I, I appreciate that for some people it is totally mind blowing, but for me, it was such a relief. It was such a relief. And it was like a very instantaneous thing of like, Oh, it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Like this was never going to work. This was never going to work. And, and that was just such a, like a light bulb moment for me. I was just like, yeah, no, this is it. (laughs) It sounds like you were totally ready for it too, right? I was so ready for it. I was so ready for it because, and I think reflecting back on this, I think part of it was because I have had the experience of being in a bigger body and everything that that entails. And although I'm a straight-sized adult, I can on some level appreciate what weight stigma and fat phobia is and how that feels. And to then be told your body is the problem and you have to fix your body by restricting what you eat and controlling everything that you eat. And then when that doesn't work, feeling like an absolute failure and complete fuck up to them being told, actually, here's this alternative. And that wasn't your fault. And you can still be healthy if that's something you want to pursue. And here are some options for that. That was just so liberating for me. Yeah, that sounds like a completely life-changing moment. And it sounds like you didn't really have a lot of experience with, intu- I mean, we're all born intuitive eaters basically, but it sounds like you didn't have much memory of that from childhood to sort of go back to. So it was, it was probably even more revelatory in a sense of like, oh my God, this is possible. I can't believe it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like understanding what hunger felt like in my body, just even that as a concept, I was like, what? You can do that? <laughs> Which sounds like just completely wild now, obviously, like ludicrous. It is ludicrous. It is absolutely ludicrous when you take a step back and think about it because we are so conditioned to be afraid of our appetites. Um, And that's, yeah, I would 100% relate to that. But yeah, also not maybe had as much opportunity early on. And this is all my sort of perception and memory. Who knows how warped that is? But my experiences, like I said, from an early age were that that food was difficult. So yeah, you're right in, in that I didn't have much exposure to what intuitive eating feels like. And, and you know, although I kind of grasped it intuitively and, and, and I, I understood the, the principles behind health at every size, that was still a process for me after that. And certainly even not just for myself, but in my clinical practice as well. And I never went down the route of pursuing weight loss with people because I think I had this, you know, health at every size lens, but then actually using and applying the tools of intuitive eating, I think came later. I guess I was using the the tools of intuitive eating or some of the tools of intuitive eating, but didn't know that that's what that was initially. And then developed my practice a bit later on. Gotcha. That makes total sense. And I'm curious for your own like personal journey out of that wellness world out of the the sort of depths of wellness obsession how that translated once you discovered intuitive eating and health at every size because I know like I think for a lot of people and one of the reasons that I now talk about the wellness diet so much is that intuitive eating is becoming so mainstream as we were just talking about off mic and that's great you know that's awesome that like the concept is filtering out to people but 
it's getting sort of twisted, I think, in some cases. And same with health at every size, too. I think the concept gets a little twisted as well to say, like, you know, you can eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full and you don't have to worry about pursuing weight loss, just like pursue wellness. You know, that's the sort of way that it gets twisted. It's like, it's not about weight, it's about wellness. And and of course, every diet company under the sun is jumping on board with that because they know that, you know, it's the new trend and that people, millennials especially, are not about quote unquote weight loss in this traditional sense. Or if they are, it's like, I mean, I see this weight loss company advertised constantly in the US now. I don't know if that's in the UK too, but I won't say its name. I don't want to give it any free advertising, but it's all ads targeted at millennials. You see it a lot on like Pinterest and Instagram and stuff. And it's it's all about like empowerment, like weight loss is a way to like empower yourself and like do it for you and all this sort of like co-opting this language of empowerment, this language of revolution, using it in the service of weight loss. And it's just like so infuriating. And so, you know, I think that the weight loss industry and diet culture in general have really glommed on to this idea of like, yeah, it's not about losing weight. It's just about being healthy. And so intuitive eating and health at every size I've seen. And even I did this, you know, a little bit in my early days with those things, too, where like you're still holding on to a little bit of the diet culture ideas about wellness or about nutrition or whatever while trying to apply it in this framework that's totally not about that that's totally outside of diet culture and so it's a little bit you know it gets a little bit blurry and it's I think it's a process to kind of work through like how much of this can I give up how much can I let go of this wellness bullshit and like fully come into an anti-diet stance yeah and that was for one of a better word (laughs) a journey (laughs) (laughs) yes because I think there were a couple of things going on for me sort of personally at that time like I'd I'd been in academia where there are certain expectations on how you communicate, how you talk about science and particularly as a woman. And then, you know, like I'd said, I'd had this this big breakup. And so I was I'd moved back to the UK. Because you did your PhD in the US, right? And then Yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. I did my PhD in Texas and then I was at in upstate New York doing my postdoc. So I was in the States for like seven years altogether. And I like really grew up there to all intents and purposes. But in some ways, you know, being in academia was kind of stifling. And and I really like, although I I grew up, I I still didn't really have a good sense of myself at that point, I don't think. Because a lot of it was like, well, there, you know, there's an expectation that you finish your degree, you get a PhD, you get a good job, and da-da-da-da. And I think I was really caught up in that, as opposed to sort of just thinking about, okay, like, where does this fit in with what I want to do? And so ultimately, I was doing my postdoc, and it was really making me unhappy, which was partly expressed in the disordered eating, right? But then when I came back to the UK, I think it was really interesting. There was such a stark contrast in the wellness bullshit that was going on in the UK at that time that I don't think I'd net, like, I think I'd been sort of buffered from in a way, but there was just like this whole other level going on in the UK. And so I just like, I got really angry about it. And, (laughs) and I started, I started writing articles that were kind of like calling out the bullshit basically. And I think that they, you know, they were still ultimately rooted in diet culture, but I was starting to get angry about things. And, and then I, I had this like 
health at every size thing in the back of my head. And so I got angry about one thing, which led me to get angry about the next thing, which ultimately got, got me to be angry about the weight thing and the weight stigma thing. And so I think that was kind of like the progression and the evolution. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think, yeah, it's interesting, like this idea of getting angry about the wellness bullshit, which I do think the the UK had a sort of particular moment with that and all the sort of major takedowns, you know, the articles in like Vice and The Guardian and like these sort of big articles about why wellness was bullshit were also coming out of the UK. So it's sort of interesting. But like I did notice also that a lot of those articles, while like so well said and spot on and taking down the wellness diet, basically. Clean eating. Yeah, exactly. Clean eating and the Instagram gurus that were touting that at the time and still are to some extent. Mm -hmm. While those articles were such great takedowns of that, they still ultimately circled back to like, but of course you need to like watch your weight. And of course you need to be like eating sensible portions or whatever, you know, they still had this ultimate diet culture message that was so disappointing. And I was like, oh, I really want to share this article, but it's not really appropriate for my my audience or whatever. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's almost like it went so far, but not quite far enough. Because they were missing that health at every size piece. And it was it's great that like you brought that in once, you know, you had the sort of anti-wellness bullshit lens and then you also brought in the health at every size piece. Like I feel like that was what was missing from the Guardian and the Vice article and like all the other articles, the sort of mainstream ones. I feel as though it- it still is to some extent. It's I'm seeing it more and more. And I've actually, I don't know if I can say this actually, but I've been asked to write something for The Guardian, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know I'm going to put obviously a, a non-diet spin on. So we are making progress. So in the summer, some colleagues and I wrote a letter to Jamie Oliver. Do you know, you know who Jamie oh, Oliver is? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the, uh, yeah, uber proponents of the wellness diet. <laughs> yeah. And so he's, he's on this like childhood obesity crusade oh. at the moment, which is, is massively problematic. But some colleagues and I basically were like, right, we've had enough of this shit. We need to do something about this, but it needs to be constructive. Like we can't just keep screaming into the echo chamber of the people who are already on board with what we're saying. We need to try and like kick this up a level and address someone that we might have some potential to influence to change. And long story short, he never got back to us. Mm. (laughs) He never got back to us. We were told, oh, it's all in hand. We'll take care of the weight stigma thing, even though that's not at all how it's played out. But the point that I'm trying to make in all of this is that, that the public were so receptive to what we were saying in that letter. And it was very balanced, very measured. And, uh, you know, we were saying, look, we were talking about basically we need to focus on well-being, not weight. Weight stigma is harmful, particularly to children. And (laughs) your campaign to ban junk food isn't going to do shit unless you also address the social determinants of health. So that was the takeaway from, from our letter. And yeah, people were very, very receptive to it, except from the people who are sort of at the top of the the ladder, as it were, the people who have the most to lose by changing the rhetoric around the obesity epidemic, quote unquote, obesity epidemic, in that, you know, there's something, there's something to maintaining the power structures that they hold. 
and they're so deeply invested in this narrative that that you know that was where the resistance was coming from like i think the general public are ready to hear this message but it's academics it's researchers it's public health it's it's the people who've you know and and understandably they've, they've invested their entire careers in in this message so I, I appreciate on one level that it's very difficult to change yeah they have a lot to lose they've got so much to lose but at the same time that rhetoric is so so harmful and so problematic Absolutely. Yeah, it's really tough. I think I think that's so well said that like the general public is sort of ready for this message because people have tried and failed and you know through no fault of their own. It's not a failure of yours. It's really the failure of diets, right? People have had diets fail them over and over again and now had wellness fail them over and over again too. You know, we've now had like 18 years or so of the wellness diet being on the scene and that has sort of had its opportunity to unfold and show that it's just the same the same shit different sandwich as I always say you know like (laughs) you can roll a shit and glitter Christy yeah (laughs) exactly it's never gonna be gold and yeah so now I think people are ready and receptive but of course yeah these industries have built up around the wellness diet and also traditional diet culture and it's so entrenched and so hard to change I mean I just did this debate at Fancy our national dietitians conference. I saw. I wish I was there. It looks so oh, good. Thank you. Looked like you kicked ass. I I felt good about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. They don't declare a winner or anything. But I did have people tell me that they thought I was the winner. So it, was, it felt good. <laughs> it felt good just to bring that message too to such a huge audience, and you know, sure. this audience of people who probably wouldn't have stumbled into my podcast or my work otherwise. I mean, so you know, to just deliver that message there was really huge. And it felt like a title shift. And a lot of my friends were like, you know, this is a really pivotal moment for Fancy and for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And like, I feel so proud to be a dietitian right now. This is the paradigm shift we're, we're looking for. And this is the direction that our organization needs to move in. But then I saw like a week or so ago, they announced the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which runs the Fancy Conference, announced that their weight management dietetic practice group was partnering with the Obesity Society, quote unquote, to like bring in basically weight stigma, to bring in weight stigma into dietitians training is sort of how I read that. And it was actually the people like the head of the weight management DPG is the one who put on this debate and was really lovely to work with and was actually, you know, just a very kind person from what I experienced with her. But to see that she had been in talks with this quote unquote obesity society, which I believe my opponent is a part of Mm. from that debate and that they got together and decided this was going to be the direction that the weight management DPG needed to go. Dietetic practice group is the DPG, it's like, you know, these sort of silos within the organization was just really, really disappointing to me. I felt I was, I was super bummed out to see that because I was like, man, you know, this debate that really opened people's minds and was such a revolutionary step for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I mean, not revolutionary and it was framed as a debate as though like once, you know, there was stuff about it that was definitely not revolutionary, but just the fact that it was there, (laughs) the fact that Mm -hmm. that many people were exposed to it. And they had done a debate eight years prior or seven years prior with Linda Bacon, who was representing Health at Every Size and someone else from 
the quote unquote obesity world on the other side. But anyway, to see, you know, that, 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 that was happening and to see like, Oh, just kidding. Like (laughs) we thought it was, you know, kind of a big step forward. And actually now they're just almost using that as a way to say like, we need to get more entrenched and more the, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics needs to take a more firm stance on like shrinking people's bodies was really, really upsetting to me. Yeah. I, completely feel you on that one because I'm seeing a lot of the same narrative of like, well, in order to reduce weight stigma, we just need to get rid of fat people. And right. I'm like, what Ugh. the fuck is going on in your head that that's the conclusion that you came up with? Seriously. But, but it, it's tough because there has been an explosion in the conversation around weight stigma in the UK. I can't, I can't speak to the US, but it sounds as though maybe, maybe it's getting there too. Totally. And yeah. On the one hand, that gives me like so much hope and enthusiasm that that maybe we're we're heading in the right direction. Then I hear things like what you've just said that there's this policy that is completely antithetical to everything that that we're talking about, and it bumps me out again. But I have to, for my own self preservation, I have to remind myself that any social change is slow, and I think that that's just an important message for anyone who's a Hayes dietitian, nutritionist, therapist, whatever your profession, like nobody tells you when you get into this, how fucking hard this work is, how relentlessly you have to, to work. And, and I'm just going to, you know, say it like, I can do this work because I have a shit ton of privilege that that allows me to do it and I'm and I'm happy to do that work and you know more than happy to do that work and in fact it's my responsibility to do this work as a healthcare professional has you know as someone who has experienced weight stigma um, as someone who works with and advocates for people in larger bodies like it's not even it's not a choice at this right. point <laughs> but I do have to remind myself, I can't change everything. Maybe Christy Harrison can change everything because she's oh. Christy Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> but, I, but, but I have to check myself sometimes <laughs> and just check my expectations <laughs> of how much I can do as a single human. But that I think is, is what's so great about your podcast and other people in this community who, who are putting these types of resources out there is that you're planting these seeds, you're spreading the messages. And, and we were having, we were having a conversation off mic where I I said, you know, I've been speaking to Evelyn Triboli, who I can't imagine anyone who listens to your podcast doesn't know who she is, but just in case you're here by accident, Evelyn Triboli is one of the co-authors of In Shoes to Be Thing. And guest on uh, episode 73 or something, I think. We'll put it in the show notes too, but she's amazing. I don't know how you managed to do that off the top of your head, Christy. I know. I'm like, (laughs) I'm not entirely sure that's right. So just check the show notes to be sure. She was on my podcast too, but I couldn't have no idea. (laughs) Anyway, but one thing, and Evelyn's been doing this work, like her whole career has been dedicated to this work. As I was, I was talking about, so I sent her a draft of my book, which was terrifying, but she's so excited about it. And she's so excited about this boom in intuitive eating. And let's just set aside how it could get mangled for just a second. Sure, yeah. But her enthusiasm as someone who's been doing this work for such a long time, like if she can be enthusiastic about this, 
and keep going and keep doing this work for as long as she's been doing it. Like that gives me kind of like a kick up the ass to be like, you have to keep going. Mm. No matter how hard it is, no matter how disappointing it is, no matter when we see dumb shit that the, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics are doing, like we have to keep going. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's such a heartening thing to say. And I'm thinking too about like Lisa Pearl, who's a mentor of mine, who's been on the podcast and also been doing this work for, you know, around the same, she's kind of like the same cohort as Evelyn doing this work for like 30 years or whatever. And and she was saying on the podcast that she had some really dark times when she felt like all of it was for naught and like, how could she keep going and and felt frustrated and that it it was really tough, you know, that there were some moments where she felt like giving up, but then there would be some glimmer of hope. And and now that she's seeing this movement of people, the sort of resurgence of intuitive eating and health at every size, largely sparked, I think, by online stuff, you know, by blogs and podcasts and Instagram and, and all the social media stuff, like people are sharing this information and jazzed about this information and like, given it sort of new life. And she said it's given her new life in the work too, because it's now showing her it wasn't for naught. Like she actually persevered in order to make this possible. You know, oh my God, I'm getting so like verklempt just talking about yeah. it. Yeah. And and I think it, it does help to kind of reflect a little bit on the bigger picture and, and think about like, I was using Evelyn as an example there, Lisa's another one, but this work has been, the roots of this work are so much deeper than even those women, but the sort of people who pioneered anti-diet movements in the 60s and the 70s, like this is just like we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? (laughs) Pushing this message, like without all of those people laying the way for us to go with this. Yeah. I mean, I'm just so thankful and grateful that, that people, it's radical for me to talk about this stuff. And I'm sure you feel like a heretic a lot of the time Mm -hmm, too, Christine, if you're anything like me, but fuck that what we are doing is nothing compared to what those people were up against and have been up against. You know, I think with social media, we we all kind of know each other. We have a community. Like it's easy for us, even though we're in really disparate places, we can reach out and spread this message. And it's it's like a lot easier to spread it now, but I can't imagine what this work was like even back then. Oh my God, I know. That's such a good point. It was heretical it's heretical now but it was like just i don't know what's sacrilege whatever it's it's like yeah it's just career suicide for a lot of people yeah and that's not even to mention like the people who aren't who are activists and not necessarily like health professionals where and especially activists in larger bodies or people of color indigenous folks like people who are already more marginalized queer people like anyone doing this work who had multiple marginalized identities and especially like in a larger body too. the people doing the fat acceptance movement like who started the fat acceptance movement in fat bodies were were just taking on diet culture head on and with the extra stigma that that gets layered upon people who don't fit diet culture's standards, you know? Because I think for like you and me and even like Evelyn and Lisa to do this work, we're insulated to a certain extent by body privilege, right? Yeah. By like white oh privilege, by size privilege and all that stuff and education. And <laughs> I joke that the only privilege I don't have is a dick. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's true. Like I have every other type of privilege available. And I, I just have so much respect for people who despite the fact that they have 
intersecting identities that have extra layers of shit to wade through are still putting themselves out there and doing this work. Like, it's incredible. Totally. And making it possible. I mean, I think without the work of those folks back in the 60s and 70s, like, we wouldn't be here today. No, not at all. And they went through so much shit. And still today, people like our colleagues in larger bodies, our colleagues of color, our colleagues with multiple marginalized identities take so much more shit than we do. And like, that sucks. That really sucks. Yeah, it's it's really awful. I spoke to Jess Baker about her experiences of having like hate groups set up about her uh, she talks about it in Landwill. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have probably read her book and are familiar with her work but it's just devastating to think that these people who yeah I adore are being that any human would be treated like that it's just but Jess made such an interesting point in her book about the people that were trolling her. I don't know if you remember reading this line, but it was essentially something to the effect of these people were like really, really deep into wellness. And I think it was like her therapist that told her that they were some of the sickest people. I can't remember exactly the line. I'm totally butchering it But But it was basically this idea that they were putting so much on her based on the size of her body based on all these assumptions and stereotypes and and everything that diet culture wants us to believe about people in bigger bodies, they'd fallen for that hook, line, and sinker, but they were actually the ones who were the least healthy because they've kind of fallen down this rabbit hole. I mean, well, you have to, you can't be well, right, to do that to a person. No, it's fundamentally like an indictment of someone's character if they're doing that to someone else. It's clearly, you know, there's something going on for them if that's how they choose to spend their time on this planet. Right, sure. But I also, I guess, like sort of bring it back up a level. These are unfortunately not uncommon, but but still quite extreme examples. But I still think about, you know, even if there's not the overt weight stigma of, of abuse being hurled in people's faces or death threats or whatever it is, it's still all the the microaggressions that fat people and, and other people of in marginalized bodies face on a daily basis that I can I can only imagine start to take a toll. Um, you know, I've heard things that my clients have told me, for instance, that are just they're so insidious that how do you begin to even tackle them? And they're just as painful too. I think that's the thing with like microaggressions is that they seem micro and they seem small, but it's like that idea of death by a thousand cuts, you know, like you're over time, they really take a toll and they add up and they push on the already existing trauma of weight stigma that people have had to endure throughout their lives in big and small ways. Yeah. And this is, this is what, um, you know, sort of, again, taking it back to the the conversation we were having before about maintaining power structures and the people who are kind of, I suppose, resistant to acknowledging that weight stigma is is such a, a big problem, like a, a common criticism, I suppose, I hear from my colleagues in, for instance, public health, is that, well, weight stigma is kind of fluffy, right? How do you measure it? What constitutes weight stigma? And they don't grasp that it's not up to them to decide 
what weight stigma is. And there are also problems around that in terms of like, well, we have actual concrete validated tools for measuring these things, which I think, again, people who are who are maybe coming from a more like basic science background rather than a psychological sciences background don't really grasp that, no, we have concrete tools for measuring these things. And so they're less willing to accept it as an issue. And so they're less willing to then tackle it and change it. And so this is for those of you who don't know me and my work, I'm doing a master's degree at the moment in eating disorders and clinical nutrition. And a lot of the classes that we have, the kind of the clinical nutrition classes, we share a core set of classes with the public health nutrition course. And basically there was a lot of like obesity chat in these classes. And I challenged some of the lecturers and I said, look, I hear the way that people are talking about people in bigger bodies, not just lecturers, but classmates. We really need to talk about these issues. And I spoke with this great lecturer. He totally agreed. And he was like, send me some literature. Maybe we could do like a seminar on it or a, a tutorial or something. So I sent a whole bunch of literature. And then one of the other lecturers kind of smacked it down, was like, we've got this in hand. We know that weight stigma is a problem. Don't worry about it. And I was like, all right, okay. And in fairness, it wasn't quite as abrasive as that. I'm I'm, I'm adding a poetic license here. (laughs) But that was the sentiment, right? Like, don't worry. It was also a bit of, don't worry, sweetheart, we've got this. (laughs) Which also goes on a lot in the course. That's a whole other podcast. So there was, we did, a, we did a sort of like ethics debate around weight stigma. And the question was basically like, do healthcare professionals have a moral obligation to reduce weight stigma? And I got put on the side of like, no, they don't. And you can imagine how livid I was by the end mm-hmm. of that. Anyway, we debated it out and that's fine. So there's that, like we know, right? Like that overt weight stigma is a problem. You can't hurl fat phobic abuse at people. But the thing that that has gotten to me, the thing that I'm really struggling with in this course is all of the insidious assumptions and biases and unchecked assumptions that people say. So for instance, one lecturer said that the reason that the seats on buses are getting so big is because people are just getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Mm. Oh, what? Like that makes no sense on so many levels. That's not true. <laughs> so it's not true in the sense that in the UK, the number of people at, over a particular BMI is static, right? That number has stayed constant since 2009-2010. So there was that sort of like, you just got that basic fact wrong. But then there was all of the stigma that was tied up in that like if I was if I was a person in a bigger body and somebody had said that right in front of my face I'm gonna internalize that weight bias and that's gonna cause me physical and psychological harm yes that's the part that they don't get so okay yes it's great that we had this debate about weight stigma but it's not okay if every single lecturer is reinforcing weight stigma through their assumptions through their biases and, and not getting like basic fundamental information correct. 
And that's the thing. I think it, it's the side of the sort of obesity industrial complex, you know, the like diet culture's new version of, or not new, but, you know, diet culture's iteration as like the quote unquote obesity research field is acknowledging is paying lip service to weight stigma at this higher level of like, oh, yeah, sure. We don't want to like tease people or, you know, hurl insults at them or whatever. People shouldn't be exposed to that stuff. Okay, fine. Great. But like, they're not acknowledging that the very fact that obesity, quote unquote, management Mm -hmm. exists is weight stigma. Well, even with the the fact that they use the word obesity so liberally yes that in and of itself is one of the most shaming and stigmatizing words that we can use to describe weight and we just sort of like oh no but if we say people with obesity that somehow removes all the stigma and the shame and the like I just can't even (laughs) right because it's like oh they have a disease which no it's not a disease even though the American Medical Association and many other organizations around the world have followed suit and calling it a disease against their own advisory committee's uh, judgment, by the way. But like it's not in the UK. Just put that out there. I'm oh, just that's like grasping at straws over here. But it's not. Yeah, hopefully never. Hopefully it's like not gonna that's not gonna come down the pike. And I do think part of the reason that it is in the US is because private insurance companies control so much of what gets paid for in healthcare. And so by labeling it as a disease, then insurance companies will reimburse treatments for it. And therefore, weight loss companies, diet companies, bariatric surgeons, all those folks get more money because they get reimbursed. So it's super messed up. And that's why, I mean, even though the American Medical Association's own advisory committee advised against labeling it as a disease, they were like, meh, we're going to just sweep that aside and go forward with it because they're getting a lot of money from healthcare, the, you know, the healthcare lobby to categorize it as a disease. So that's why that happened. But that is so stigmatizing. Like I've talked to folks on the podcast and many folks in my practice and online courses and stuff who are just livid and feel personally very stigmatized by that labeling by the the idea that their body size is a disease because what is that if not if not stigma and it is a conversation that's going on here at the moment we have a a fairly aggressive anti-obesity public health policy in the uk and and it's kind of being rolled out in waves of different some things are, are great in the sense of like from a public health perspective they could help improve health across the population, not just specifically to people who have a BMI above some arbitrary cutoff. But at the same time, so much of it is so deeply, deeply problematic. And one of the, like in this suite of measures that they've, some genius has come up with, um, it's labeling at some point, they're going to try and lobby for labeling obesity as a disease. And, And I think that Actually, we have some really great stigma researchers in in the UK who are lobbying against that. But whether or not they heed the advice or we go down the route of the US, it all remains to be seen. But but at the same time, even more reason that we don't give up and and we don't stop fighting because we have to kind of tackle all of these, these measures that are coming out of government and try and refute them and shut them down. Yeah, absolutely. It's an ongoing battle. It really is. (laughs) 
And I think the more, the stronger that our side gets, the stronger the health at every size, intuitive eating, anti-diet side gets, the harder the other side is going to push back. So I think we need to be ready for that too. And and I'm, I do a lot of work with students and I'm so encouraged to see a whole new generation of nutritionists and dietitians coming up through the ranks, coming out of the gate as health at every size in choose of eating dietitians and nutritionists. Like that just gets me really, I've got a big smile. I know you can't see me, but that makes <laughs> me really excited that there are people that are doing this like from day one. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, that really inspires me. Like I don't think I would have had the gall at that age to yeah. just be like, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah, no, it, it's true. It's really, it's a lot to push back against. Um, well, so like you're you're saying in your master's, right, that there's all these people teaching you who are so steeped in diet culture. And so to push back against that, you know, especially as an undergrad or something, like to push back against that when everyone teaching you the supposed way of your profession, that like the path forward is through diet culture, basically, it, it takes a lot to oppose that and to have, you know, your own sort of knowledge and awareness and intuition that there is another path. And so I think that's, that's super inspiring. But I want to make sure we have some time to talk about your book because we haven't even, I mean, all of these topics we've been discussing <laughs> are related to your book and are, are represented in your book. But I want to hear a little bit about the genesis of your book and what it's about and what it delves into and then where people can find it and learn more. Yeah. So my book is called Just Eat It. And the subtitle is How Intuitive Being Can Help You Get Your Shit Together Around Food. And the way I just, well, I mean, everyone who listens to this podcast, I think will know what intuitive eating is. And so it's kind of my take on how to do like a really practical guide to intuitive eating. That sort of, I suppose it's just the way that I communicate intuitive eating to, to my clients. But what I was really really conscious of when I was writing the book is making sure that it was true to the intention of what intuitive eating is. So I hope Evelyn and Elise, I hope I've done you proud. <laughs> <laughs> but I also really wanted to bring in concepts like self-compassion. So there's a whole chapter on self-compassion and self-acceptance, but also looking, trying to understand some of these socio- political reasons why our relationship with food gets fucked up in the first place. So we all have our own interpersonal shits, right? Like that's what you talk about a lot on, on your podcast. But then they, we go out into the world and disordered eating is reinforced by culture. So I, I explore, for instance, self-objectification theory, thin ideal internalization, healthism, nutritionism, some of these concepts just to give a little bit of context as to why are we all so fucked up about food in the first place and then walk through my interpretation of the principles of intuitive eating putting a sweary spin on them <laughs> <laughs> which totally needed to happen I love it <laughs> needs to be out there yeah I just I hope it's like a I don't want to say an update to intuitive eating because it's not at all that's a classic book it's always going to be a book but it's kind of yeah just just putting my spin on things and maybe explaining some of the concepts in a slightly different way but like really trying to stay true to what intuitive eating is and I've also got loads of guest tips from people like yourself and other non-diet friends that I just really massively admire 
I need to like get my elevator pitch for the book sorted out <laughs> before I do more more media interviews. But yeah, that's kind of that's it in a nutshell. I suppose. It's awesome. I love it. And it's I feel like it's definitely such a cool take on intuitive eating, much more conversational, I think, than the original book. And both are valuable and wonderful in their own ways. But I think, yeah, your book is just a nice it's a companion. Extension. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a good it's a good companion. And I think the the sociocultural stuff is really awesome and important and like extends on a lot of the stuff that we're always talking about here about diet culture and like why people get so fucked up about food. Cause I think that normalizing the fucked upness is part of why we all have such problems with it. The fact that it's just expected that especially cisgender women are going to be weird about food and always watching it, quote unquote, is part of why we all get so far away from intuitive eating and our birthright around, you know, having just a relaxed relationship with food. So being able to understand some of those concepts and some of the reasons why we're here, I think is an important first step to being able to let go of the ways that diet culture has colonized your mind. Yeah. And and I think one sort of thesis I tried to have throughout the book is like, it would be great if we could all kind of get our shit together around food. And when I say get our shit together around food, I fully acknowledge that it's totally fine to lose your share of <laughs> food and that happens. But giving you the tools to figure that out and look at that from a compassionate way and say, okay, why did that happen? Like, what's going on with me right now? But that's not the end in and of itself, right? I see intuitive eating as a means to liberate us from diet culture so that we can begin to do the real work of social justice, of reducing health disparities, of all of these, you know, wider sociopolitical problems that we have because that like ultimately diet culture is keeping us like quite when we have to be like clear about this that this is a deliberate effect of living in a patriarchal society is that we are kind of kept in this constant state of confusion and self-objectification and just so focused on our bodies that we're distracted from these bigger picture issues. And this is my personal opinion. Anyway, Christy, I'm sure you probably feel similarly though, is that diet culture is just a, one huge fucking distraction from what the real problems are. Absolutely. So agreed. And I think diet culture is like patriarchy and racism and white supremacy's tool to keep oh, us, yeah. you know, away from the real stuff. And it's got such roots, such deep roots in racist beauty standards and patriarchal beauty standards and stuff like that, that it, it's a way of keeping us feeling bad about ourselves and further oppressing people who are already oppressed by not meeting up with the patriarchal and white supremacist ideals that then keep us from fighting for justice and advocating for a society that's more equitable equitable for for everyone yeah so i think i think that's beautifully said and just so such an important message for people to continue hearing like it's not just about fixing your relationship with food it's about mm -mm. helping you be available to so much more in life yeah and both your own personal goals and ambitions and aspirations, but we can't ignore the wider societal piece 
in all of that. You know, it's not just, yeah, it's great if we can do our dream career, but at the same time, we need to be zooming out a little bit more and and looking at the bigger picture stuff and how can we help foster a more equitable society. Yeah, because people, when when we're so distracted about thoughts of what we're going to eat and the macros or calories or whatever in the food we're eating, then we're not thinking about how we can change the world and we're not available to change the world or showing up to be able to do that. We're not engaging in political actions, you know, we're not participating. We're not getting angry. Yes. <laughs> we're getting angry at ourselves. We're turning it in on ourselves instead of turning it outward where it belongs. Yeah. And there's this really interesting thing I write about in the book around self-objectification theory. And there's like actual evidence that shows that when we are interrupting our flow state to literally look at our bodies and imagine our bodies through the male gaze, that that uses up cognitive resources that disconnect us from our internal signals of hunger and fullness and disrupt that interception piece within our bodies. God, that's fascinating. So literally, (laughs) self-objectification, which is what like literally every magazine ever teaches us to do, can actually move us away from that experience of being in our bodies. God, yeah. And that's exactly what then perpetuates the cycle of like looking outside ourselves for some guru to tell us how to eat or some rule to tell us how to be in our bodies instead of being actually attuned to our bodies and able to do that for ourselves so that we don't need the gurus. So it really does perpetuate this industry. It perpetuates the diet industrial complex and the wellness industrial complex and the beauty industrial complex to keep us continually focused on how we look. Yeah. And diet culture and all of those things that you just mentioned, they teach us to fear being in our bodies and to disconnect from our appetite and and teach us that we need these external things to tell us what to do, to tell us how to be in our bodies and take us away from that innate wisdom that all of our bodies have. Yeah. So morally bankrupt. It really is. And when you say fear being in our bodies, that really strikes me because I feel like it teaches us to fear being in our bodies, but it's actually because diet culture fears us being in our bodies. Because what would that do to it? That would make it evaporate. That would make it unnecessary. That would make it extraneous. If we if we were actually able to be in our bodies and truly embrace the intuitive eating birthright that we all have, diet culture wouldn't have a place, wouldn't have a role. Yeah. And so yeah. it fears us being in our bodies. It's threatened. Yeah, you're so right. That's such a great point. And it's it's projecting that fear onto us. I think about projection a lot lately because of Trump, because like everything he says basically is a projection, you know, it's like lock her up. It's like, no, actually lock him up because he's the one who's committed crimes. You know, like anything he says, it's basically... You can flip it back on him. Yeah. He's calling the other person a name first so that he doesn't get called out or he's putting it out there so that no, it doesn't reflect back on him. So... Because I think Trump is sort of the embodiment of patriarchy in a lot of ways and of white supremacy and all of the everything that's wrong with Western culture. And, you know, I think diet culture is very similar in that sense, where it, it wants to it wants to put it all on us. It wants to put, you know, it wants to blame us and project on us 
what it actually fears. And of course, it's I'm speaking about it as this disembodied thing, but really culture is people. Culture is all of us, right? Culture is the industries. People make up the industries. Culture is the the entertainment, the media, the the stuff that we consume, the little comments in the break room, the magazine articles, whatever, like it's all of it. So really, it comes back to people. And I think this cultural fixation on on bodies really does distract us from the real stuff. And I think as a culture, we sort of fear what would happen if we took that away? What, what would happen if we lost that distraction? Yeah, I think that's a really frightening prospect for so many of us, because the big stuff is the scary stuff, right? Like it's, I mean, it's a shit show out there, Christy, like when you, when you stop and think about it. So like, I, I can understand and appreciate why people want to have this misplaced distraction on their bodies, because it's, it's kind of rough out there, but ultimately it's self-defeating. So it's difficult. It's really difficult. I know. Ugh. And we could go on about this forever. This is such a <laughs> such a huge topic, but it's yeah. so it's such important work that you're doing and I'm so excited about your book and I just think it's adding so much to the conversation. So, thank you for doing it. Thank you for being here and sharing your story and tell us where people can find you and learn more about your book and your work. Well, first of all, thank you, Christy, because coming from you that is an enormous compliment. So, thank you. You're or I'm going to gush here, but your, <laughs> your work has been so impactful on my own work. And I know other people who, who listen to your podcast. And so I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to, to be on your podcast. But also, you know, I've done some trainings and things with you and, and just, just enormously grateful to have the opportunity to learn from you. Mm. Um, and I can't wait for your book. Uh, <laughs> when's that coming out? Hurry yeah. up and publish. <laughs> oh my God, I know. I wish it was out like yesterday. <laughs> oh, to actually answer your question, on socials, I'm at Laura Thomas PhD. My podcast is called Don't Salt My Game. And my book is called Just Eat It. And it will be out in January in the UK. I'm not sure about the US if it's going to even be published there so but just kind of keep an eye on socials and I'll I'll update everyone as I as and when I get those details that's awesome yeah we'll we'll put links to that in the show notes too so people can find you and your Instagram is epic so I encourage people to follow <laughs> you there as well it's really really great stuff you're doing oh thank you thank you so much for being on the show thanks Christy so that's our show thanks again so much to Laura Thomas for being with us on this episode and thanks to you for listening if you've gotten something out of this podcast, please share, rate, and review it to help other people discover us and to spread the anti-diet message. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, you can easily share by clicking the three dots at the bottom right corner of the screen and then click share episode. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 181. That's christyharrison.com slash 181. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, become an intuitive eater, and break free from diet culture once and for all, you can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. 
A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into making this show for you every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched.